Greetings and welcome to episode 16 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about law, the legal institutions that governed the practice and theory of crime and punishment for about 2,000 years on the East Asian continental mainland. We're going to begin first with the theory behind law before we get to the actual practice of punishment and the legal institutions on the ground. Now, the overriding theory that you have to understand is that it was believed that crime disturbed the natural order, the right order of things. Human society was disrupted, okay? Um, and punishment was seen as the responsibility of the, represent, the, the representatives of heaven on earth, the son of heaven, i.e. the emperor. It was his responsibility to set up institutions that rectified the imbalance that had occurred as a result of crime. There is a natural order. There is a way that human society is supposed to operate. There is an equilibrium. And when someone commits a crime, that equilibrium is disturbed. And it needs to be put back in balance. And that is the job of the Son of Heaven and the institutions that he creates on earth. But the punishment has to do several things. To punish someone, first, that punishment has to fit the crime. It has to be in proportion to it. It has to be commensurate with the severity of the crime. And that's actually somewhat difficult to figure out. It's a much more complex idea than you may think at first. How do we know if a punishment fits the crime? Well, it will fit criteria number two, that it reflects the social hierarchy. Okay, and this, more than any other point that I want you to leave with today, this is by far the most important one, because it's the one that's most alien to our, de to our ideas and morals today. Crime had uh, uh, the punishment that a criminal was to receive, was supposed to reflect the social hierarchy of the world in which he existed. Okay, it's not like today, in which in most legal systems throughout the world, the, the ideal, all right, law on paper is that no matter what the crime is, it should be punished equally, regardless of who the perpetrator is. All right, whether it's the president of the United States or whether it's a homeless person on the street, if they commit homicide, if they rob a 7-Eleven, they are supposed to be, all other things being equal, of course, they are supposed to be punished exactly the same. Now, in practice, we know that doesn't always work out like that, okay? But in theory, that's the way it's supposed to work out in our world today, okay? Now, when we're talking about ancient China, that isn't even the theory. That isn't even the ideal. Okay, the ideal there is that the punishment for robbing the equivalent of a 7-Eleven, a tea house, or something like that, uh, you have to first determine, well, what is the social class of the perpetrator? Uh, did he know the person that he killed? Uh, was it a woman killing a man? Was it a man killing a woman? How old was the person that was killed, and how old was the perpetrator? Did he kill someone who was older than him or younger than him? Did he kill a nobleman or a commoner? Okay, there's all kinds of considerations that come into, that come into play in deciding what the punishment should be. Because the concept, the theory that is most alien to us today is that punishment has to reflect the social hierarchy. Okay, and that is... Um, something that's relative, it's subjective in different times and places, and it's certainly an idea that we don't usually think of as much today as a guiding principle of how the legal system should operate. All right, emphasis on the word should, because we know it doesn't actually always operate like that. All right, we're going to have a lot more to say about that. And then three, punishment should be in accord with heaven. Well, what does it mean to be in accord with heavenly dictates? Let me just give you one example. There are many others. Um, this is also something that's a little bit alien to us today, um, but not quite so important in determining the specific type of punishment that's going to be doled out. All right, an example of a heavenly dictate. Executions. If someone had been um, uh, 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 
determined that they had committed a crime that deserved death, that deserved an execution, that execution was supposed to take place in autumn and winter only. Why? Because autumn and winter were the seasons of death and decay. Just look all around you and you see leaves on the ground that are green leaves dying. All right, That is the color of death and decay, whereas spring and summer are renewal and life. Okay, so if an execution was somehow delayed for whatever reason until springtime, it had to wait until the autumn or the following winter. We have this wonderful quote from early in the imperial era in which an official in charge of executions is described in the following way. When the beginning of spring came, he stomped his foot on the ground and sighed. Ah, if only I could make the winter last one more month, it would be enough to finish my work. Well, you procrastinated official in charge of executions, and unfortunately you're not going to be able to cut off all the heads that are on your agenda for this year. Now, Obviously, there's probably another more pragmatic reason behind that ideology. Well, you know, if you can, if you want to think about for a minute, why might it be uh, preferred that dead bodies are produced in greater numbers during the fall and the winter? Well, lower temperatures and the likelihood that you're going to have snow on the ground and whatnot uh, may be something that you want to consider if you're going to have a lot of dead bodies lying around. 105 degrees with full humidity in the summer may not be the best thing for a corpse. All right. Now, let's move on and start with our bird's eye perspective and then move down a little more specific until we get to the ground level. What was the imperial legal philosophy and how did it actually get translated into practice on the ground? What we need to highlight here, we need to highlight the tensions between an idealized Confucian moral world order and the educated agents of the state, the local officials who were tasked with carrying out that Confucian moral order versus the -the on-the-ground reality of needing to use the rule of law to govern society, i.e. legalism. Remember Han Feizi. Back then, I said that if you want to think about how the Chinese state, the imperial Huaxia state, operated, you need to always think of it as having, uh, maintaining an uneasy tension between Confucian ideals and legalist pragmatism on the ground. Every single Confucian would say that he was supposed to show his humanity, his mercy, the gift of redemption, transformation, the self-evident superiority of a virtuous man was supposed to make everyone else around him better. Okay? In practice, however, the idea that there should be clear rewards and punishments for everyone, and you can't consider every single individual scenario and exceptions here and mitigating factors here and whatnot, we have to have a single system for everyone if we're going to have this enormous empire. All right, that was legalism, and the Confucius, the Confucians were always embarrassed by the fact that sometimes they had to resort to legalist institutions, because from their eyes, they were morally superior men who better the world through their virtue and the practice of it. But they had to acknowledge the reality that humans are humans, and we pursue our own selfish interests. And our selfish interests bring us from time to time in conflict with our neighbors, with other people. And in order to restrain people from pursuing their selfish interests too much, you have to have some heartless legalist institutions that have severe punishments and penalties on paper that everyone knows about. This is what you're liable to get if you do X, Y, and Z. That has to be clear. It can't be, well, we'll see what's going to happen to you based on an extended hearing about your personal situation and all the mitigating factors and the trauma you experienced as a childhood and your grudge. You know, that's all interesting information. But the legalists say, you know what, in the end, we're not going to get this ship off the ground if we don't have a uniform system that judges everyone equally. So what you get in the legal system is you get this uneasy mix of legalist precision and lack of sympathy, i.e. 
harsh punishments, and a Confucian desire to show mercy and bring back wayward sons into the fold of human society and give them a second chance by showing them leniency. And hopefully, through your own virtuous example, they will be turned towards the better path. Okay. In this sense, the legalists are actually somewhat more democratic in the sense that despite their reputation for an unfeeling harshness, the law was supposed to be applied equally to everyone, regardless of social status. That's sort of our ideal today, isn't it? Whereas the Confucians were the opposite. They say a social hierarchy exists, the law must reflect that social hierarchy, and crimes upward and downward on the scale of human status must be punished differently, and you can take mitigating factors into account. And the Confucians are always looking for an excuse. If you read through court cases in Imperial China, you're finding over and over again the Confucian magistrate on the ground is always trying to find a pretext to show some form of, of mercy. All right, he's not a bloodthirsty sadist who's trying to cut off as many heads as possible. He's trying to find an excuse to mitigate the punishment. In other words, if you want to say cynically, to take the path of least resistance. Okay. Now, so, one example of a legalist idea in theory, okay, is that every single time you read a court case, almost pretty much without fail, all right, if a homicide has taken place, someone has killed another person, it actually doesn't matter what their social status is relative to one another or what sort of boundaries have been transgressed. If it's, say, a, man, a, a woman kills a man, which, as we'll learn in a minute, is much, much worse than a man killing a woman, or a son killing a father, which, as we'll learn in a minute, is much, much worse than a father killing his son. All right? Regardless, the legalists would say, Automatic death sentence for the perpetrator. No discussion. If someone dies, it's eye for an eye. And that's carried over into actual legal practice. You will see in every single case I have ever seen, if a homicide has taken place, the first sentence is always death for the offender. Doesn't matter what sort of mitigating circumstances there are. Death is your sentence. Execution. But then what you'll find is that in the process of all these checks and balances, which we're going to cover in today's episodes, we find that eventually, after all these different levels of review, the emperor's birthday giving an opportunity for clemency throughout the realm to show how virtuous and benevolent he is, sooner or later, a large number, it's hard to be exact, but it seems that a very large number of the, of the original death sentences are commuted in some form or another to hard labor, uh, to an outright clemency, to you know, getting whipped on the ass for you know, 50 strokes of the heavy bamboo rod, uh, whatever it may be. But you find out that even though 100% of people who commit homicide in one form or another are given an initial death sentence in the end, um, you know, it's the number of those who are actually executed is significantly lower, significantly lower. That's a great example of the tension between legalist theory and the Confucian ideals existing in you know, tension with one another. Okay, now let's get to this social hierarchy thing. All this deal about the status of the criminal and the status of the victim being just as important as the crime itself. All right. As I said many times, this is the most counterintuitive concept for us in our day and age, even though we know in practice that people who have more money and better jobs and a higher status in society tend to get off on the exact same crimes that poor people and marginalized people uh, commit. Nevertheless, we know our ideal is that they should all be punished the same. Okay. All right. Now, what sort of logic governs this idea in imperial Chinese law? Crimes against the imperial family. Let's just start at the top. Crimes against the imperial family, the dynastic house, or imperial property, let's say the tombs of the emperors, all right, are all punishable by death. 
No one even has to die. It doesn't have to be a homicide. If you've burglarized or vandalized or plunder the tomb of a Ming emperor, okay, or um, let's say you were the artisan tasked with create, you know, uh, 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 building a carriage that one of the imperial princes rode and that wheel cracked and he, you know, sprained his ankle when the carriage rolled over, the artisan could be put to death, or at least give, be given the initial death sentence. Whether or not it would actually be carried out is another question. All right, if a, if a gift that a favored official or anyone had received from, let's say, the emperor or one of his brothers was accidentally broken by the person who received the gift from the emperor, an initial sentence of death. You clearly did not take all the precautions necessary to show that you valued this object, which is an extension of the emperor himself, in your possession. And therefore, that is a crime against the emperor himself. All right, that's, so that's a wonderful example of reflecting the social hierarchy. Okay, any crime against the imperial family, which sits at the very top of that pyramid, that social pyramid, is going to be punished extremely severely. All right. Now, let's get away from the imperial family and go down the social pyramid. Crimes committed by kin or against kin, against your relatives, are far more serious than those committed by strangers. To kill someone that you are closer to by blood, by relation, by family relation, is considered far more serious than to kill a total random stranger. Okay? Because you're transgressing the filial bonds of the Confucian society. Crimes from someone who is seen as a junior member of the family against a senior member are far worse than from a senior member injuring or killing a junior member. Okay? A son, as we said, a son striking his father, God forbid killing his father, is going to be seriously punished if the father chooses to report it. You know, he may not choose to report it, but if he does, that son's in big trouble. All right? A son can't even denounce his father. It's not even allowed. A son can't bring a suit against his father in court. Are you kidding me? No one's going to listen to that. Okay? But the other direction, a son imposing discipline or injury upon the junior members of his family, both junior in terms of age and generation, and junior or inferior might be a better word in terms of gender. Well, that's totally okay. Beatings, fatherly discipline, beatings are the norm. All the way up until the 20th century. A son isn't allowed to touch his father, you know, a daughter, whatever you want to say. Okay, but a father regularly beats the shit out of every single member of his family. The man of the house is allowed to beat the crap out of his wife, beat the shit out of his son, whatever he wants. And it is extremely unlikely that anything's going to happen to him. Okay. Transgressions again, uh, across gender are punished extremely harshly as well. All right. The, one of the absolute worst crimes. The only other horrible crime you know, you know, at the very top of the list of the worst things that you can do other than committing a crime against the imperial family or imperial property is for a wife to murder her husband. Okay, that was just seen as the absolute worst thing. And therefore, it merited one of the worst punishments as well. As we're going to see, not all forms of death are created equally in imperial China there was a fine distinction about what sort of death was going to be doled out to you if you were given a death sentence. We're going to get to that in a minute. And then finally, rank and title could mitigate punishment. Okay, there's a finely graded hierarchy of the types of ranks and titles that people in the imperial bureaucracy, usually people who work in the government, have officials Nobility, people related to the imperial family or those who have passed a civil service examination, the, the, the noble families, people who haven't inherited wealth and power or earned wealth and power. Okay? They can actually trade in 
their rank in order to mitigate the punishment, to have the level of their punishment get reduced. So sometimes you'll actually see, I've seen this many times actually, in uh, uh, legal cases in which an official will be accused of some, you know, horrible corruption. Corruption that spans many, many years. They've taken tons of money. Okay. Um, And they might be given a death sentence. But it'll go from one of the worst death sentences, the most humiliating types of death sentences. He can actually then exchange his titles, relinquish any claim to, you know, two peacock feathers. And And in return, he'll get a better form of death. He can commute the punishment with his rank. Or very often, maybe someone will get uh, some, some nobleman will be accused of stealing money or something like that from the treasury. Okay? Or showing disrespect to someone who is seen as his superior. And he'll be able to either trade his rank or title so he doesn't have to undergo um, physical punishment. Maybe he'll just be able to pay a fine. Or he won't go into jail. He'll just have to pay a fine, pay money. In fact, most of the nobility, most of the people who had rank and title, one of the privileges was is that you couldn't be physically punished. All right, that was one of your privileges, is that if you were going to be punished, uh, humiliation would not be done unto your body in the same way that it would be done unto the bodies of people who were deemed your social inferiors. Okay. And then, of course, political crimes always punish the most severely. That's sort of an extension of crimes against the imperial family or imperial property, really. Uh, A a political crime is, almost by definition, a crime against the family that holds the state and is in power. Um, And again, like we said, those are are always the worst. If you're seen as someone who, you know, it's not just like you, you made a bad wheel and the carriage broke or something like that, or you tried to climb the wall of the Forbidden City, Um, if you actually tried to assassinate the emperor, God forbid, or were accused of treason, or fomenting a rebellion, um, not only are you personally going to get the most gruesome, horrendous, nightmarish of deaths, but all the people related to you are going to get the same. Okay? To the nth degree. Many people that we would now look at and say, oh, they're innocent. They didn't know, or they didn't do it, or they didn't participate in the plot. Forget about it. If they share your surname, if they're within two or three degrees of cousins or whatever it may be, man, woman, child, you're all going to die. All right? By guilt, by extension. Sometimes the whole clan would have to go, and you'd be lucky to get off with castration. That would be a form of mercy in those sorts of situations, even though you personally didn't do anything. All right, so I made a big hullabaloo about types of punishments and, you know, good types of death and bad types of death. Let's get into the types of punishments because it's very important to understand the gradations of punishments because it really mattered since it depended on the social hierarchy. The punishment has to fit, has to reflect the social hierarchy. Well, well, you need to have a, a... a great diversity of punishments in order to have room to reflect the diversity of the society. So, many different types of punishments. One of the most common was beatings. Roll up your shirt, lie on your stomach, pull down your pants to show your buttocks, and you're going to get pounded with a bamboo stick. Now, they had different gradations of this. A light bamboo stick, or a heavy bamboo stick, and then... How many times are you going to get hit on the ass? Are they going to say 30 strokes of the light bamboo? 40 strokes of the heavy bamboo? Oftentimes, it could be 100 strokes of one or the other. Now, 100 strokes of the light bamboo, you'll probably probably survive. You'll have some scars. You're going to get bloodied up. You might faint. Um, But you'll probably make it if you're an otherwise healthy person. It's the heavy bamboo you got to watch out for. You get a punishment of heavy bamboo. You know, don't don't look down on bamboo just because it's light and whatnot. Um, if you get past 50 strokes of the heavy bamboo, you might die. 
You might die during the process of actually getting hit, and you might die during the recovery period. Uh, That's quite a severe punishment. All right, so there's, you know, beatings itself has several subcategories. What type of implement is going to be used to hit you? Um, And then how many times are you going to be hit? Mutilation is an interesting one. Mutilation, uh, having body parts cut off, ears, feet, nose, or also a tattoo. Tattoos today are usually seen as cool. Tattoos were not seen as cool in Confucian society. In in many other societies throughout the world, tattoos are also sort of like a mark of your identity, something to be proud of, something to show off. Uh, Not in China. Uh Uh-uh. And we'll explain why in a minute. Hard labor. Oftentimes, if you get tattooed, part part and parcel of the tattoo punishment is being sent off to hard labor. And you'll be lucky if you're sent off to hard labor somewhere in the vicinity of your own neighborhood within 100 miles. A lot of times, hard labor is out on the frontier. And that can be brutal. Hundreds, thousands of miles away from home. You may never come back. You can be put in the kang. The kang is this sort of like Sort of like a horse collar, this, 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 this large, heavy, thick, wooden circle, or sometimes a squarish type implement that's hung around your neck, and it weighs you down, and you have to wear this thing. It can be, I think it's up to 33 pounds, is what the king wears, uh, weighs. You have to stand out in public on a street corner and have this thing over your neck. It can be, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, a week. And you can die there too. You can die from exposure. You can die from the physical exertion. And if you survive, it's certainly socially humiliating as well. People walk by you and they see you in that thing. Then, of course, there was exile. Exile was a popular punishment for officials who had uh, displeased the emperor in one form or another. Uh, oftentimes, they didn't really want to give him a death sentence or they had a way to avoid physical punishment because of their exalted rank and whatnot. Uh, you know, so exile was often seen as a good thing to give them. Um, and then there's death. Now, the degree of humiliation is in direct proportion to the degree that your body is mutilated or physically altered. Okay? This is why tattooing the body is seen as a humiliation, is seen as one of the worst punishments. Okay, and this is why there are different types of death as well. The goal is not pain or suffering for its own sake. Okay, this directly affects your afterlife. The stakes involved with the type of death or even the type of punishment that you get with, you know, short of death is going to affect your entrance to the afterlife. Because you want your body to be intact for the next world. You don't want it to be forever unintact. All right, so what sort of forms of execution do you have? Tattoos, bad enough. Having a leg, a, a foot cut off, a finger cut off, a nose cut off, or an ear cut off, that's bad enough. But if you're going to die, there are good deaths and there are bad deaths. Okay? First, forced suicide. Well, that is by far your best death being ordered to commit suicide. I know it sounds like an oxymoron. Ordered to commit suicide? You can't order someone to commit suicide. Oh, yes, you can. Because the person being ordered to commit suicide absolutely knows that if they don't carry out their own suicide, usually by poison, ingest poison, that's the best way to go, um, then the order is going to come down (laughs) a, a, a much worse form of execution that's more humiliating and one that doesn't keep your body intact. So being ordered to commit suicide is the most honorable form of death. Your body stays completely intact, you're good to go for the afterlife, and most importantly, you have not disrespected or dishonored the parents who gave you your body and raised you and fed that body. That's why a tattoo is bad. You're desecrating the body that your parents gave you. That's unfilial. Okay? Next best form of death, strangulation. It's not like poison. Poison, you get to do it yourself. You can go into a room, you can lock the door, no one else is around, you swallow the poison, you die, no one sees you, it's not socially humiliating, and no one else caused your death, physically at least. 
Strangulation is the next best one. Your body, like, like with poison, like with for, for suicide, your body stays intact. That's very, very important. You've honored your parents still. Okay? But the humiliation with strangulation comes in is that you're not, being, you're not strangling yourself. All right? Uh, there's probably going to be people involved with your strangulation. Whether it's a rope, whether it's hands, whatever the form of strangulation is, someone else is around. All right? But still, the body's intact. Way to go. Now we get into the bad deaths. All right? You really did something awful to get these deaths. Beheading. Should be obvious, right? You lose your head. You separate the head from your body. You've dishonored your parents, and you're going into the next life where the hell's your head. Not good. And then finally, the worst death. Dismemberment. Known as Ling Chi. The, de- the lingering death. Sometimes translated as the death of a thousand cuts. Now this is the worst. Now it's not as horrible as it's made out to be. Alright, of course it's bad. <laughs> but oftentimes it's imagined that the, the lingering death, the death of a thousand cuts, means that uh, a special effort is made to keep you alive so that you experience all the horrors of death and that you, you know, you, they, they want you to, to be awake while it's all happening. That's actually not true. Okay? The death of a thousand cuts, usually you're able to bribe the executioner, into agreeing to give you some sort of an opium type thing, something to dull the pain a little bit before you get strapped up on the wooden cross. Um, And then he's going to make a few token slices and cuts across your chest and whatnot. Um, But then probably after 30 seconds to a minute, uh, he's going to dispatch you. He's going to give you a fatal blow to the heart or something. And then the really gruesome, horrible nightmare stuff happens after you're, you're already dead. You're, you're, you're medically dead. Once you're medically dead, that's when the dismemberment comes. That's when they really go to task, spending the next hour slicing you up left and right, cutting off each one of your limbs until just a bloody torso remains. And it looks bad. All right, so your actual experience of dismemberment is not quite as bad as you might expect it to be, although it's still pretty shitty, let's admit it. Okay. But the theory behind your death is horrible. Okay. You didn't just lose your head. You were such a horrible person. You had so little respect for the body that your parents gave you that you acted in such a way where the emperor decided you had to be punished by ripping every single limb from your body, slicing you up so you're not even recognizable anymore, and then thrown on the ground in a bloody heap. That's the worst. You can't even walk, your spirit can't even walk into the afterlife anymore, because you don't even have legs. Alright, so theoretically... Dismemberment is as bad as it gets. All right, now, we already sort of talked about mutilations, tattoos, cut off your nose, your feet, castration. Oftentimes in the old days, that that, that could actually kill you. All right, the recovery from having a limb cut off could very well kill you. Um, You know, having things cut off from your body as you get closer and closer to our own day and age, the 20th century, that gradually gave way to extended whipping. All right, which generally did not maim you or mark you for life, unless, of course, it was heavy bamboo of more than 50 strokes. Um, hard labor, of course, one to five years was the most common punishment. Men would be put on construction, prog- uh, construction projects, or they would be sent to the frontier to man frontier garrisons, often against nomadic incursions. That, too, had a very high risk of dying. Okay, We know that the men had to repair buildings, mend roads and bridges, excavate ponds, dig canals, do flood control, you know, city walls. Uh, The most dangerous job that they would be given if they were sent to convict labor was to work in the iron and copper mines. Okay. Uh, We know from looking at skeletons of people who had to do this sort of thing, who had these sorts of punishments, that one in 10 of the skeletons 
of convict labor died from trauma blows, blunt trauma blows to the head. They were forced to wear a two to four pound collar with a spike that was aimed at your chest if you tried to run away. And it seems that on average, one to six people in these convict chain gangs could die on a daily basis as a result. So it's pretty brutal. If you're sent to hard labor, there's a very high chance you're going to die. If you're sent to man the frontier garrisons, there's a very high chance you're going to die. For the state, it was an extremely important source of expendable labor. Convicts who are sent to hard labor, whether on the frontier or near home, were treated worse than slaves. All right, Slaves, at least, were the private property of the wealthy. They were a something you could put a value on, a monetary value on, and you protected it like you protected your furniture or your house. Uh, Convicts, if they die, they die. No one is going to raise a fuss about them. Uh, Women could also be sent um, into hard labor, but they usually didn't do the same sort of hard construction-type labor or military duty that the men did. Uh, They would be set on more domestic duties. You know, you go out and you pound grain, All right, you know, day after day after day, that sort of stuff. All right. Now, how did the legal system function? What were its elements? Well, there's two things you need. If you have a grievance and you want the state to get involved, ideally, the state doesn't get involved at all. All right. Ideally, if you got a problem, you stay stay away from the courts. You find some way to deal with it informally with your own families and your communities and your neighborhood, you know, elders. Hopefully, they can mediate. Because going to court's going to cost money, and then the state's going to get involved in your business. And most people don't really want that. It's very expensive to go to court, just like it is today. You don't just stroll in. There's a lot of things you got to have. First, you got to have literacy, and you got to have a man. All right? Being able to read and write and having male, male genitalia is essential to bringing a plaint in court. Women cannot bring suit in court. They can only bring suit in court if a man does so on their behalf. Okay, so men only, even if a woman is the one who actually has the problem. Okay, Uh, she has to have a man represent her in court. This means that women only appear in court, unless they're called as witnesses. If they're called as witnesses because they witnessed a crime or they had a, you know, a stake in it, um, then they're, of course, they're going to make an appearance in court and they're going to give their testimony. Um, but otherwise, if they're the ones with the problem and they want it to get resolved, if a woman is in court, this means that a man has a stake in what happened to her. And he's willing to go to court where most people don't want to go. He's willing to take the trouble to fix whatever the problem is with relation to this woman. Now, most of the time, the sort of issue that's going to prompt a man to take a case to court on behalf of a woman, not his personal grievance, but that of a woman, is usually if it's his sister, his wife, or a daughter. Okay? And usually it's going to be for a rape or adultery case. Because as we'll talk about in uh, later episodes, it might be a little bit down the line, but we will get to it eventually. Um, it's the man's interests that are at stake. At least that's how it's seen from the perspective of the state. All right. A woman's chastity is a male commodity, something that the men around her have a vested interest in protecting. All right. So don't be surprised. You knew that when you get, you know, prior to the 20th century, uh, in almost all parts of the world, it's a man's world. It's a patriarchy. All right. Don't be surprised. Uh, All right, so you need to be able to read and write, and you need to be able to have a man take you to court. So you find usually most people at the lower levels of society, they can't read and write. vast majority of the population is illiterate. They can't afford to go to school. So you got to pay someone. you got to pay what were known as litigation masters. All right, educated men who sit on the corner at a little desk, and they have a sign up saying, you know, Pay me this much money, and I'll help you write your complaint in the proper style so that it'll be accepted and heard by the magistrate. So, literacy and money are already in the equation. Men, literacy, and money. Okay? Now, you present your your grievance to the court in the proper style. It's all written up in nice classical Chinese. 
by someone who does this for a living. And then you go there and you have contact with the magistrate. Now, the magistrate is the lowest level. He is the, the representative of the lowest level that the imperial state penetrates down into local society. All right. There's no one below the magistrate officially in the eyes of the imperial state. He is their contact man. And the magistrate is there for making crucial judgment calls based on his training in the Confucian classics. The magistrate himself is not, memori- is not memorizing all the legal statutes of his dynasty. All right. He has a whole team of legal experts who have memorized that stuff. Oftentimes, there are people who were not able to pass the civil service examinations, if we're talking about Song Dynasty or later, i.e. 1100 AD or later, all right? Or they're just people who, for what, for one reason or another, they were never able to become officials. They were never able to break through that glass ceiling into elite status, but they're still educated. They got an education, um, and so they work in sort of the shadow bureaucracy that officially is not on the payroll, uh, but the magistrate who is recognized by the imperial state, he hires them, pays them out of his own salary or other sources of income that he can draw upon from the local community. And they're the ones who are seen as having technical expertise. And technical expertise is rated way below philosophical, humanistic, moralistic expertise. And so he consults them to understand what statute is relevant for this case. And then he's the one who brings his superior Confucian training to look at the situation on a case-by-case basis and say, screw you, legalism. Screw you, statutes. I am going to take my moral eye, assess the virtues and demerits of this situation, and decide what the most appropriate punishment is. Now, for most people, their only contact with the Chinese state, officially, is going to be when they pay taxes, And it's going to be when the magistrate presides over a court case. Court cases were public entertainment for most people. They were open. There weren't closed sessions. Anyone can go. The magistrate wanted you to go. He wants you to go to the court. Because he wants you to hear his moral judgments, his superior insight into the human mind. And advertise the leniency and the benevolency of the imperial state and its rule over the local community. And to understand this is correct moral behavior, and this is not. This is how you should conduct your lives, this is how you, how, how, how you should not. Almost like a, a priest giving a sermon. There's going to be a lot of moral lessons showcased at any court ceremony for all the onlookers who have come in in the days before television and radio and iPads and Netflix to get their day's entertainment and watching someone being punished. Okay. This is why the Confucian state actively allowed legal cases and lawsuits. They encouraged them, despite the fact that they deplored them as morally degenerate. Time and time again, you'll see ritual denunciations by Confucian magistrates and officials who say that, you know, people who go to court, these litigious, these litigious villagers, always fighting with one another, they can't resolve their own disputes and they have to bring it to us. They, they always look down on these people as morally degenerate. A real gentleman doesn't have to go to court to solve his problems. So they despised the people who had to go to court for this. But at the same time, they recognized that the legal system, the judicial system, gave them legitimacy as the rulers of this population. So they recognize our authority. And it's an opportunity to engage local society. There aren't too many opportunities to do that. It's an opportunity for the state to engage local society and confirm the legitimacy of its own rule over them. And teach them proper morals to boot. They show up, and we can disseminate Confucian Orthodox morals to them as we punish this adulterer. Okay. Now, the magistrates will question all the parties in an open session, call in witnesses, 
And what the magistrate really wants to do is determine the motive. Determining the motive was crucial. All right, because the legalists say it doesn't really matter. A crime is a crime. Punish the same. The Confucian says, no, 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 no. Motive is crucial. Got to understand why they did this. Whether it was for, a, a, you know, ostensibly a higher good or whether it was just pure evil. Because this will be a pretext for the mitigation of punishment, potentially. They want to know what your class is, your family position, who you killed, the status of everyone. All, right? All of this can affect the type of punishment that you're going to receive. Okay, it's also going to, going to affect what form of torture you're going to get, or whether you can be tortured at all. You can use torture. The magistrate was totally allowed to use torture, but he had to report it. Now, why would he use torture? Because you can't convict anyone without a confession. How do you like that? Today, a serial killer who everyone, you know, the mountains of evidence that this person has killed and eaten 35 people. They'll never admit it. But when you have all that evidence, you can still convict them, even though they can go to their grave. They can go to the electric chair, having never confessed to the crime. Not in the old days. You had to have a confession. Okay? It was essential that the person who did this admit that they did it, or you cannot punish them. Okay? So torture is acceptable, but it's not the ideal tactic. Because it was known. These people aren't idiots. They know that torture can produce false confessions. People will say what they think you want to hear. So magistrates ha you know, had the right to torture. They had an incentive to torture, absolutely. But they also had checks and balances. They knew that... Uh, a confession uh, uh, procured through torture would be seen as not as reliable as a confession procured without torture. How would everyone else know? You have to report it. You have to put it in your report. I tortured this person, to, and, you know, and while I was torturing him, he said this. Everyone up the higher chain of command is going to see that. You can't lie, because it's an open session. Everyone's seen this. You can't lie and say you didn't torture when you did. Everyone knows you did. Okay? So you got to know when to use it. And the justification for torture is that the Confucian magistrate, in all his infinite wisdom and moral superiority, knows when to use it. He knows, with his superior mind, he knows when someone's lying. He knows it. And it's not fair for this person to get off scot-free just because they refuse to confess and we can't convict without a confession. I know he's lying. I can see it. Because I'm smarter than him, I'm superior to him. Now, there were rules for torture. No one over 70, no one under 15, no invalids. Officials and nobles of certain rank could not be tortured. And then some people could be tortured, but you had to give them the good torture, the type that didn't hurt quite so much. What types of torture were there? Oh, just as creative as the other types of punishments. You can have your ears twisted. You can be slapped. You can just be, you know, outright beaten up. <laughs> uh, you can have be forced to kneel on chains. You can have your fingers or your ankles squeezed through these intricate devices. It was quite painful. They had ways to torture you. Nonetheless, we don't want to fixate on this. We don't want to fixate on things like dismemberment and torture and say, oh, oriental despotism. No, 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 no. There was an impressive system of review and checks and balances that are really unmatched anywhere in the world until the 19th century. All right, every single time when you, when you talk about this kind of stuff, you have to put it in perspective. You have to think, my God, okay, so they allow torture and they have punishments like dismemberment, um, and that looks bad in the year 1900, at the end of the imperial system, when finally Western civilization has, 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 has moved on beyond these things. But if you compare it with the world in 1200 AD, and you say, this is the Chinese legal system in 1200 AD, what are the Europeans doing in 1200 AD? <laughs> Let's not even compare it. It ain't going to look good. All right. The Chinese have the most sophisticated legal system anywhere in the world, and they outpace the rest of the world by like 700 years or more. All right. 
It's a systematized bureaucracy that attempts to mitigate as much as it can maverick officials doing their own thing. All right. Every single thing that a magistrate does in court was reviewed and seen by higher ups. It could be four or five rounds of review. And if it's a death sentence, if they think someone has to be sentenced to death, that goes all the way to the emperor. And the emperor has to confirm the death sentence before it can be carried out. And if things don't look like they, mesh up, they, they, they match up, if there are discrepancies in the testimony, uh, that case gets sent back down the chain of command and the magistrate has to revisit it. Okay? And then there were handbooks. There were legal statutes that the magistrates, clerks, and secretaries had to memorize. But then the officials also had handbooks for investigation and forensic techniques, how to collect forensic evidence. For instance, if there was a homicide case in your jurisdiction, you had to both submit a coroner report and you had to visit the body in person. This, is, this always shocks me. that You're talking about, you know, 11, 1200 AD. And the magistrate, who can rule over a district of anywhere between 30,000 to a million people, if, if there's a suspected homicide, he has to travel in person to the site of the dead body. And he has to bring a medical professional with him who writes up a coroner's report. And the coroner's report, I have my students read these things, they're an incredible amount of detail. Every single little wound and bruise and discolorization and position of the body is noted. That's like an episode of CSI. It's, 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 it always shocks me to read those things. I'm going to give you a few examples from the handbooks he has as well. On forensic evidence, this is a quote from the handbook that every magistrate had because the assumption was he's going to need to use it because this is part of his task, this is part of his job. When investigating, it is essential to examine and consider the physical traces. One must go alone to the place where the corpse is and consider the knot of the rope. This is, you know, someone who's been hung. If at the place of the knot there are traces of a noose, then observe whether the victim's tongue protrudes or not, how far the head and feet are distant from the place of the knot and the ground, and whether he had discharged urine and feces or not. Then untie the rope and observe whether mouth and nose emit a sigh or not. Then observe the condition of the blood congealing along the trace of the rope. These will help you determine if the deceased truly committed suicide or was murdered. People who kill themselves must first have had reasons. Question the members of his household so that they will reply as to the reasons. Advice for how to do an interrogation is as follows. In all cases of interrogation, one should first listen fully to their words and note these down, letting each of them set out his or her statement. Although you may know they are lying, there is no need to question each point just yet. When the statement has been taken down and it does not cohere with the evidence, question the suspects closely. If the suspect repeatedly lies, changes his testimony, or refuses to confess, then you may whip those whom the law allows you to whip. All right, now, there's, there's some of that Confucian arrogance here. You know they're lying. All right. Um, and when you know they're lying, then you can resort to physical punishment. But then, remember, there's the legalist precision with the law. Whip those whom the law allows you to whip. Not everyone can be whipped. All right, there are restraints. There are expectations, and there are checks and balances. Now, a magistrate is both detective and judge, okay? Um, and, he, and he has broad powers. There's a lot he can do at the local level, but let's just remember there's also some checks and balances around him as well. Public opinion, first and foremost, all right, can turn against him. And then there is that complex system of review all the way up to the imperial capital for murder offenses, there were strict timelines for when each stage of an investigation had to be completed. And if you don't complete it by a certain time, then you're not getting that promotion that you were hoping for next year. Legal cases oftentimes were the biggest headache for magistrates because there were so many things that they had to do, so many boxes they had to check out, check off and procedures. And everyone's watching them to make sure that they do it. And the magistrate can be punished for false accusations 
or torture or any punishment that he gives out that turns out to be baseless. If he sends, if he uh, condemns someone to be beaten with the bamboo stick, and then somehow it later comes out that this man is innocent, then in theory, although, you know, probably rarely in practice, but at least in theory, the magistrate himself can be hit with the 50 strokes of the bamboo rod. Okay? So, you can see the stake that's involved here, the incentive that the magistrate has to make sure he does a very thorough job at first, and also that he's on the same page with all of his legal assistants, that by the time he's done with the case and he sends all the paperwork up to the next level for review, he's made sure if he's good, if he knows what he's doing and he cares about his own career prospects, he made sure to massage and edit that paperwork to ensure conformity with the decision he has reached. Okay. One striking thing, in my classes I have my students actually read, you know, court cases and transcripts, actual transcripts of court cases, some of the most fascinating readings that I have. I love reading these things. Um, And you'll notice that the testimony of witnesses will be quoted in full. Very long excerpts of testimony. But what's interesting about them is so often they say almost the exact same thing. It's almost like they had a Microsoft Word document and someone selected, you know, a paragraph and then hit copy and paste and then just changed the voice of who it was. And you're thinking, wow, how could these people have said the exact same thing in the exact same phrase? He used the exact same phrase. Isn't that peculiar? Until you realize that what's likely going on here is that the magistrate and his assistants have written that testimony in such a way, they've edited it, so to speak, uh, so that it there are no discrepancies. You know, no one at a higher level who hasn't been in the court case and actually heard the testimony can actually gainsay what they, what they see on paper. They'll have to say, well, all the testimony accords here, and it all supports the magistrate's decision, decision in the end that this person is guilty. That's exactly what the magistrate wants to, that's the sort of impression they want to give to all the higher-ups. Now remember, who's writing down the testimony of witnesses? It's the clerks. The people giving the testimony are often illiterate. They're not writing down their own testimony. And they don't have tape recorders. These people are talking fast. You can't keep up like that. It's secretaries who basically rewrite the testimony that was given verbally in court, and then it's done usually in a form of classical Chinese. I always love that. If you read these in the original Chinese, you're seeing these, you know, illiterate farmers or someone who sells fried bread on the street. They come in and they're speaking in classical Chinese in the court record. Well, obviously, they're not speaking in classical Chinese. It's just that their testimony was recorded in that form of language. Okay. You also see types of language that are pregnant with preformed meaning. You'll see that, you know, if, if, if it's sexual relations have occurred, sex will be described as illicit sex. Um, if the person who eventually is found guilty, you'll find that person early on in the court documents described as irrational, or, you know, he did this unreasonably, or he was the aggressive one. Well, do we actually know he was the aggressive one? We have no way of confirming that. The magistrate has written it up to subtly guide the mind of the person reading it to already regard this person as guilty, whom you will later decide at the end of the court case is guilty. All right. So in that sense, you know, sometimes you you can sort of see that the magistrate is playing his own game at the local level, to make sure that he doesn't get punished for a miscarriage of justice, right? Precisely because there is a pretty sophisticated system of checks and balances above him that he has to watch out for. Now, we also see that women often appear in the, in, in the court cases and court texts, and I always, that's one of the reasons why I find the court cases so fascinating, because it's one of the very few places in which you get Uh, testimony, uh, the words of women. Yes, it's written in classical Chinese by a man with his own biases, but nonetheless, to some degree, 
that is what she said. It's mediated through several lenses of patriarchy, yes, but oftentimes that's the closest we're ever going to get to the real voice of marginalized people in society who were illiterate. They had no other way to leave the traces of their lives. And sometimes, many times, they come through in some form in court cases, however edited, however filtered, still they're there. And it's utterly fascinating. And one of the most interesting things about court cases and the legal system, why so many people in Chinese history love studying legal history, is because the Chinese have the most thorough extensive records that have been preserved of court cases filled with all this testimony written down. Um, And women, along with other marginalized, voiceless people, appear in great numbers. Yes, they appear through the lens of men and through the perception of what men thought good and bad women were like, but nonetheless, they show up there. And this will lead us into our next episode in which we're finally going to start exploring the relationship between men and women. Our next episode will be on women and the family or the issue of gender in general. Okay, for some reason, this is, you know, my my own research, the, the things that I actually study, somehow I ended up selecting topics where women don't appear a whole lot in the sort of research I do. I do a lot of research on the frontier archaeological expeditions, and those are dude-centric, <laughs> dude-centric enterprises. Uh, but I do, I can assure you, I recognize um, that women are 50% of history, and it's essential to recover those voices as much as we possibly can, and that is what we're going to do in our next episode. I hope you will join me when we discuss women and the family. Music